Uh, it's great to have you joining us online. Great to see everyone here in person. As Sarah mentioned, we are trying to get as many people into the building as possible to kind of actually gather together as a church. So uh, every Monday, uh, if you go to the website, you'll see kind of the graphic that we have uh, right now, two gatherings for the summer. If you just click on that, there'll be a new form each week and you can sign up to be here. And we are encouraging you as much as you are able uh, to come and gather here if we need to. Uh, we'll look at adding a third gathering and uh, we're also looking at kind of later in the summer uh, figuring out a family zone. I know a lot of you parents have been at home for a long time with all of the, the kids, and we'd love to get them back here, so we're going to figure out uh, how we can make that happen. Uh, but uh, we are trying to proceed uh, carefully and, uh, and safely, and so it's great to have, to have you here. Um, I'd like to pray for us before we begin, and then we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 51 to 62 today. So let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for your many blessings. Uh, Lord, it's it's easy these days to miss them uh, because of the, the difficulties and challenges depending on uh, the circumstances of our own lives. But Lord, we just look around and think there's, there's so much challenge. Uh, Lord, we forget the many blessings, Lord. It's a blessing to be able to, to gather here, those of us in person, those online. Uh, it's a blessing to have your word, Lord. Uh, from it, we gain uh, everything we need uh, for life and, and faith and, and comfort. And I pray today, as we look to it, Lord, you would instruct us. God, you would... Uh, convict us, Lord, that our hearts would be open to what you have to say. We wouldn't be entrenched in our own kind of way of doing things or even how we've done things in the past, Lord, but that we would be open to the leading of your spirit. And so I pray, please, Lord, you'd help me in spite of my own sin uh, to lead us to the point of knowing you more by your grace and through your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Luke uh, 9, 51 to 62. And um, if you've been with us for a little while, you know last week uh, I, we were not here. I wasn't here. Uh, Norm was here, thankful for him to come and, <clears throat> and preach. Uh, our family was on a bit of a road trip. Uh, we went to Nelson, British Columbia. Uh, this is the summer to explore province, and so we did. Uh, my cousin lives in Nelson, and so we, we drove up there. It's a great little town, kind of a quirky little town, lots of outdoors uh, activities. So we were biking, and we were skateboarding, and that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's a bit of a drive, right? It's eight hours there. It was nine hours back because of the traffic. And it got me thinking about road trips. Uh, road trips are great. We, we like road trips, but they can be a challenge, of course. Uh, if you have kids, they're especially challenging. Uh, in, in my mind, there are two things that really you need to make a road trip successful. You need preparations. And by that, I mean these days, downloading as many things as possible onto a device any device that you can, uh, getting things to listen to, lots of snacks, lots of water just to keep yourself hydrated, anything, right, just to get through the hours, however long it may be. Uh, but the other thing that's important is expectations because there's a difference between driving to Whistler or driving to Quebec, right? That's a different, you get into the car thinking differently. You have to prepare yourself mentally for the leg cramps and the arguments and the, the frequent rest stops, whatever it is, uh, the longer you go. And I'm thinking about that because uh, in our text today, Jesus, he begins a road trip. In fact, it's his final road trip where he makes a, a beeline for Jerusalem and for the cross. In fact, uh, just to get into this, let's look at our very first verse of our text, just the, the first verse, verse 51. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So when it says taken up there, it means taken up on the cross, right? He's saying it's time, his time has come. And you'll notice he knows that Jerusalem is the place where this is going to happen. So if you look at our map, I have a map for us just to kind of orient ourselves. 
Most of his ministry up to this point was done in Galilee. And so it's kind of in the northern part, but he needs to go down to Jerusalem. You can see the arrow. So it's a bit of a journey. This will take uh, a couple of months in real time. In the Bible, it, it goes all the way from Luke chapter 9 to Luke 19. So that's what we're going to be going to be seeing in the next little while is that Jesus is, is kind of journeying through. Uh, Luke 19 is the triumphal entry when he actually enters Jerusalem. And right as he begins, he wants to set uh, the proper expectations for his disciples. Not just for this particular road trip, but really big picture what it means for all of us, even today, to be on the road with Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be following him. It's key that we know what to expect and what's expected of us. And that's really what this first snapshot is. So we're going to look at two things, two things we find in our text that he says uh, is essential uh, for following him faithfully, and they are mercy and commitment. To be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him faithfully, mercy and commitment, and we hit each one uh, in that order. So let's begin with mercy, and we'll look at the first section of next four verses. Uh, here's verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So, quite a beginning to this road trip. Already some adversity. Um, let's make sure we understand what's going on here. Uh, you, have to, you have to know Jesus, he traveled with a big group of people, right? Not just the 12 disciples, but a whole, whole bunch of people traveling with him. So in that day, it would have been customary to send a runner ahead to the next village to say, hey, we're coming. Is it okay if we stay with you? You know, make preparations. That's because there was no Motel 6, right? Not even any really rest stops, no vending machines. They, they needed to depend on the people along the way. And that was just the custom at the time, right? When someone came to your village, you would be hospitable to them. And then when you were on a journey, um, they would be hospitable to you. That's just kind of how it worked. But here, uh, Jesus and his group, they get rejected. So why is that? Well, we get some of the, the key in the text. You notice it said that they rejected him because they saw his face was set to Jerusalem. That means that they knew that they were Jews, right? Jews are the ones who traveled to Jerusalem. And so these were not Jews. These were Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the Jews, you have to understand, they had a long-standing rivalry. I mean, there was a lot of animosity, a lot of hatred between these two people groups. It started when the Samaritans, uh, back in the Old Testament, they intermarried with the Assyrians, who were a godless people. So the Jews started calling them godless, started saying that, you, you know, you're not really faithful to, to God, shunning them, uh, keeping away from them. The Samaritans sort of did the same thing back. Well, you're godless. And, and they set up their own temple. They had their own scriptures. They were completely divided, and the chasm between them was just filled with hatred. So it wasn't really a surprise that this Samaritan village uh, rejected uh, Jesus and his followers because they were, they were Jews. It's also not that much of a surprise to see James and John react the way that they did. I mean, it seems pretty extreme, right? They're rejected, so let's call down like a lightning bolt from heaven to consume them. But actually, this, this happened in the Old Testament, Elijah, prophet of God, was being uh, pursued by these Assyrians, these Samaritan soldiers. The king of Assyria wanted to get him, sent some men, and Elijah, he kept calling down fire and would consume them because it, they, they were in the wrong. It was, it was a judgment upon them. So James and John, they figure, well, look, the, these guys are clearly in the wrong. 
right? They should have been hospitable. They should have recognized this is the Messiah. They deserve judgment. Let's, let's do it. But they're rebuked. Why? Because it's not the time for judgment. It's not that the Samaritans don't deserve to be judged. It's not the time for judgment. In fact, Jesus had been making very clear, right now is the time for mercy. Uh, here's a few things that he's been teaching them just a little bit earlier on. Here's Luke 6, 35 and 36. He's taught them, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. In Matthew 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So what's interesting here is, is that it's, it's not that James and John were wrong about their assessment of sin. The, the Samaritans did deserve judgment. The wrong for James and John was their response to sin. Right? This shows us that as, as Christians, right, even, even today, we can have a real zeal for the truth. Like we can see um, wrongs in others very accurately, but that's, that's not always the big issue. The big issue for us is, is how are we responding to it? And very often we are responding in, in the wrong way. And the missing ingredient for the, for the most part is love. A lack of love and compassion and mercy on our part for those who are rejecting us, those who are offending us, those who are in, in sin. Now to be clear here, we're not, we're not talking about criminal activity. Right? The Bible says there's a reason why we have civil government. They, they bear a sword for a reason. We are to prosecute those who are criminals and protect those who are being abused or, or violated. What we're really talking about here in terms of application for us is our interpersonal dynamics. Like those people around us who, who reject us, sin against us, uh, bring animosity bet between us. Right? Think of a friend that you know is, is in sin. And you've seen it and, you, and you've been trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, think of it even further, someone who sins against you. And the question is, how, how do we respond? How do we respond to the sin around us, the corruption in society, the wrongs we see in the church and the people around us who are supposed to know better? The real question isn't, do we see this inaccurately? It's, are we responding with the mercy and the kindness of Christ? We could ask ourselves, are we quick to condemn the people around us? Think of James and John. They didn't take long, right? They're like, this happened, bam, let's call down fire, Jesus. We got the power, let's do it. Is that how we are when we're offended? Are we quick to blast someone back on Facebook, right? When we see something wrong, big tirade, get in someone's face? Or are we quick uh, to show mercy? To be understanding, to, to give a second and third and fourth chance. I think we know that it, it's much harder to show the mercy. And it's obvious why, right? Because we, we hate it when people get away with stuff, right? We want justice. We want to be protected. We want to make sure people are put in their place when they've, when they've offended us. And we need to be clear, though, like those are not wrong desires. It's good for us to want justice. We should want people to answer for their sin. We should want to be protected. But the difference in being a follower of Jesus is that we know that all of those things will happen perfectly by the hand of God at the perfect time. Jesus will bring perfect judgment. 
that there will be an answer to all of the sin of the world. And Jesus is our defender and our protector. So again, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to, to violence or abuse, but what it does mean is that we can extend forgiveness and mercy and grace even, even when we are being offended in an ongoing way. Because we know God is the perfect judge. We know that, that we have received mercy. We, we don't deserve the mercy that we've received. We are continually offending God, and yet he's extended grace and forgiveness to us. See, the beauty of, of the kingdom, as Jesus is bringing it into the world, the gospel is that it, it provides the blueprint and the engine for reconciliation and peace between people who are at odds. This is what we're seeing, actually. We're seeing the front end of this in this situation. I mean, this applies to, to really every relationship that we have, marriage, friend, community, people in community group, the church, even in, in the city, right? Those where we're tempted to be at odds, to be hard-hearted towards each other, right? They, they've hurt me. My inclination is to return in kind. And yet the gospel says, says, no, soften your heart. But it's not just individuals here that, that we're talking about. We, we are also talking about different groups of people. When we think about racism, think about prejudice, what we see here is the answer, the thing that can overcome all of the, the hatred that exists between two groups of people. Because remember who we're talking about. We're talking about Samaritans and Jews. Two groups of people who have a lot of reason to hate each other. And here we see an example of it. These supposedly faithful followers of Jesus, their immediate inclination is judgment, condemnation. They're not worth it. And Jesus says, you don't understand the kingdom. You, you don't understand the gospel. If you're one of my followers, you are to always extend mercy. And, and the neat thing about this story is that because we get the whole New Testament, we see a, a heart change in John in particular. I want to take you to a, a little part in Acts. So this is after Jesus has gone to the cross, after Jesus has been resurrected, he's back up in heaven. He said to his disciples, now go and proclaim the kingdom. Go tell everyone about the mercy that I've shown. And John finds himself traveling back through Samaria again. Look, at, look here in verse uh, 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So this is, this is John and Peter. James is off somewhere else. But John, just think about it, he's traveling in the same direction. He doesn't go around Samaria like many of the Jews would. They go right through Samaria. And man, I got to think that they hit the same town. It was on the same road. And this time, instead of calling down curses upon these Samaritans, John preaches the gospel. Why? Because his heart has changed. He's seen the extent of God's love for him, that Jesus went to the cross for him. It, it's, a, it's meant to show us the way in which God can change our own hearts, soften our own hearts, even in the midst of, of pain and difficulty. So application for us in terms of mercy is I, think, is, I think, really clear. How do we respond when people reject us? Like, right like right now, like in our lives? Are there times when we metaphorically want to call down fire from heaven on people because they deserve it? Are we quick to point out wrongs? Or are we keen to be merciful and gracious? 
Mercy is the first key to being a disciple. Let's move on to the second, though. We said mercy and commitment. Now, with commitment, um, we actually get three little snapshots. So with, with mercy, there's kind of that one scene. Now there's these three interactions with people who say to Jesus, man, I'm excited about this road trip. I want to come and follow you. And in each instance, Jesus pushes back on them. And he kind of, he tempers their enthusiasm. And that's because Jesus knows it's very easy to say, I want to follow you. It's really hard to follow it through. Right? And expectations are important. Jesus doesn't want us to think that following him is like a quick trip to the store when actually it's like traveling all the way down to the tip of South America. It's long. There's, there's hardships. There's, it's going to cost you something. So he says to these people, he says, let's make sure you understand what you're talking about. So we're going to look at um, each couplet. There's three of them. And then pull a, a principle of commitment out for each one. So here's verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So the principle, first principle here is that disciples must be willing to give up everything. Everything. I just love this man's enthusiasm though, don't you? You can just imagine him coming up. Jesus, I'm like, this is great. Let's go wherever you want to go. I'm with you. And Jesus basically says, but you don't really know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. I don't even have a place to rest my head. Foxes are more comfortable at night than me. So what's he saying here, right? We have to understand, okay, what is he calling this man to? Does, does this mean that like Jesus in his ministry, Jesus was poor, Jesus was homeless? Is that necessary for every Christian? Well, the answer is no, it's, it's not necessary. And we can say that with confidence because there are examples of Christians in the New Testament that don't just have homes, they have big homes, right? Lydia, for example, different people in the New Testament who had others, that the church gather in their homes. They had a big enough home that the whole church could gather there. However many people that was, 50, 100 people, they had big homes. They supported the church. It's not that we can't have stuff. What Jesus is saying is that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to see your stuff very, very differently. Because the world, the world sees our stuff as a source of what? Comfort, security, peace, hope, and joy. Not in a really negative, superficial way, just in the sense of like, if you're going to build a life for yourself, you're thinking, I need, I need, a, I need somewhere to live. I need some clothes to wear, transportation. We, I need a coffee maker. We need things that if we get up in the morning, we're going to be like, okay, I feel, I feel like I can face the day. That, that's human nature. That got me thinking about this, uh, this essay. I don't know if, it's this kind of famous essay by now uh, by a, a British author named Virginia Woolf. And... Uh, she was writing in the early 1900s and uh, she was writing about women and fiction, right? And, and she wrote this essay called A Room of One's Own. And really the whole argument in the essay was that for, for women to be able to write well at the time, one of the challenges for them is that they didn't have a room to do it. There are always these drawing rooms, this communal space where everyone was there. It was hard to, to concentrate. At the time, there was no economic independence for women and so it hindered their, their art. But really what she was saying is, look, for any human being, we just need a place to call our own. That when we have that, we feel more comfortable, more secure, more able to flourish in life. Jesus isn't denying that. He's not saying that's a bad thing. What he's simply saying is that disciples, look, you have a greater reality now that is true for you. That your comfort and security and joy doesn't rest in the things of this world. 
So to Virginia Woolf, he would probably say, it's, it's good to have a room of your own, but if you're following me, you need to be willing to give it up. You need to hold it with an open hand. Right? It doesn't mean that immediately when you come to Christ, you just give everything away. What it means is that you should expect at certain times for God to call you in a direction which means you've got to let things go. And that can be very difficult. It can be difficult because we're so used to the immediate comfort and security of the things around us. But I'd imagine in, in a room like this or, or watching at home, for those of us who are Christians and have been following Jesus for a while, we can think back probably to times where we've had to give something up, where we've, we've been tested in a sense, where we've, we've known that God is calling us in a certain direction and it means less comfort, less security. Uh, for us, it, it was leaving teaching. I was a teacher, good school, continuing contract with the Coquitlam School District. Uh, the call to ministry, Don and I knew that meant, that meant giving that up for, for a future that we didn't quite know what it looked like. But there was a conviction in our hearts that going where Jesus was calling us to, there was greater comfort and greater security there than anything that the world would have to offer. And that's what we're called to. Not only is it what we're called to, the real sense I think that Jesus is, is what he's saying here is that we need to be ready to do it and we shouldn't be surprised when these opportunities come our way. We should expect to have hardships and difficulty down the road that he's leading us. Uh, Kent Hughes, Kent Hughes says it this way. I think this is, uh, this is good. He says, if your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life, something is wrong. Just think about that for a minute. He's not saying, look, it may be the case that at some point it's going to be a little bit hard. He's saying that if you look around at your life, and there's no source of discomfort, no hardship because of what Jesus has been calling you to, then there's, there's probably something wrong. It's inherent in the journey that it will be difficult because it's a long journey. It's a difficult journey. And the tests along the way, they demonstrate our commitment to Christ. So a good question for us is to simply look around and to ask ourselves, have we been avoiding those kinds of difficult decisions? Like, has there been a sense in, in our mind, in our heart, can we think back to times where we've been called to, to give something up and we just haven't been able to do it? Right now, perhaps. Are the things that we know God is, is he's testing us in a sense. He's, he's leading us to a place where we need to hold things with a much more open hand so that we will go where he wants us to go and so that we will find greater comfort in him rather than the, the things of this world. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. It's great that you want to follow me, but are you really willing to go wherever I take you? Because where I take you, there's going to be less material comfort than you're used to. That's the first principle. Let's move on to the second. The next couplet of verses. Verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So the principle here is that disciples must prioritize the gospel. Disciples must prioritize uh, the gospel. Now, in this case, uh, Jesus' pushback seems very uh, puzzling, or even might say harsh. Because this guy says, you know, I want to go bury my dead father. And Jesus is like, nope, can't do it. Come on, we're going, we're leaving. And you're like, why? Why can't he go and bury his dad? Well, a couple things. Uh, that will help bring clarity. Number one, uh, this man's father uh, was very likely not yet dead. 
He wasn't saying, my father's dead, I need to go bury him. And the reason we know that is because in Jewish culture, uh, whenever someone died, the body would be buried within 24 hours, every time. So if this man's father was already dead, he would not be out on the road with Jesus. He, he wouldn't be there. He'd be back home. He would have already been involved in the burial proceedings, all that kind of thing going on. Most likely what this man is saying is, my father is, is very old. My father is sick. I want to go and care for him, tend him. Uh, when he dies and I bury him, then I'll come and then I will follow you. Which even that doesn't seem that unreasonable. I mean, the, the Bible says, right? Honor your father and mother. In 1 Timothy, it says those who don't care for their relatives are worse than an unbeliever. It's an important thing to care for our aging parents. But what Jesus is, is saying here is it's an important thing, but it's not the most important thing. That there are, we have to prioritize in our life the things of God above the other needs that we have. And his response, his response when he says, kind of leave the dead to, to, to bury their own, it sounds harsh, but what he's really saying is, look, leave those who are spiritually dead to care for the physical needs of the people around them. Those who are spiritually dead, who don't know the gospel, they can, they can care for a dead body. That's fine. But listen, if you're alive spiritually, if you know me as Savior and Lord, then that means that you have a greater gift to give the people around you. You're called to care for their spiritual needs. That's why he says, go and proclaim the kingdom, proclaim the gospel. Even in a sense, what he's saying is what your family really needs is not that you go and tend to your dad physically, but that you go and care for him spiritually. If you're a disciple, the things of God, the gospel itself will always be our top priority. Because even though there's a lot of other important things in our lives, that is the thing that we need and that everyone else needs before anything else. But this is hard for us to see, I think. Because our lives are caught up with so many other important things. Stuff that we, that we know we need to take care of. So much so that we can very easily put aside what should be in the forefront of our mind. Uh, I was personally convicted of this this week. As I was preparing the sermon. Uh, because as I was, I was writing this, there was a, one of my neighbors came to mind. Uh, this is a, an older uh, gentleman on the block, lived there for like 35 years, and uh, he's moving. Uh, he's moving up to be close to his, to his kids, and he's been on my heart for months because I haven't, I haven't I really had a conversation with him about the things of God. And I knew in my head that he was leaving, and I kept just not finding time to talk to him. And as I was writing this, like I was typing the sermon, I was thinking to myself, this sermon, I, I do need to do this, but... I can't be doing this and not go and share the gospel with him. So I was working at home that day, so I stopped typing that sentence, and then I got up, and I put on my jacket, and I went across the street, and I knocked on the door, and I just said, look, I, I know you're leaving. Um, I'd love to have a conversation about God with you before you go. And at first, he was a bit reluctant, and then he remembered I was a pastor, so we kind of expected it, and I was like, you know. And we sat down. Look, we had a, we had a great conversation. A great conversation about the faith of his childhood, the challenges of his life. And I was able to share the gospel. I was able to pray with him. And as I left, I was, I was very glad that that happened. But what I was really thinking is, man, I wish I hadn't waited so long. I, I wish that I'd had maybe more opportunities to go and have conversations with this man before he's, he's gone from my life completely. Look, if, if we're followers of Jesus, we have to have the right priorities. 
We, we can't let the important things of life get in the way of the most important thing. The thing that everyone around us need before they need just our time, our physical care, whatever it is, we, we need to prioritize the gospel. And the way to do that is to be in prayer daily, to be saying to the Spirit of God, help me to see that the needs of those around me, help me to see people and their needs accurately because I don't know about you, as I'm, as I'm blowing through the day, there's just thing after thing. I got my to-do list. I love checking things off. And it's so easy to get to the end of each day, week, month, and year and think, man, I just didn't, I didn't do the thing that God is really calling me to do. The other thing I just say is, it's not just a matter of commitment and obedience. There's real joy and pleasure when we have the opportunity to sit down with people. It was a joy for me to, to talk to my neighbor. And we're missing out on that joy if, if we're putting other things first. Okay, our, our third, our last principle comes from our last uh, couplet here. Verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the principle here, principle number three is disciples must not look back. Disciples must not look back. Now, I think we'd say uh, this last interaction is also a bit puzzling, right? I mean, this, this guy, he doesn't want to go home for like weeks or months. He just wants to go home and say goodbye to his family. And Jesus again says, says no. He kind of he rebukes him. Why? Well, because Jesus, you have to remember, he sees our hearts perfectly. And what he must see in this man is that his commitment to following Jesus is very, very thin. And Jesus knows if he goes back home, uh, they're going to start asking questions, right? They're going to start saying, what are you doing? Where are you going? Who? That rabbi? Traveling with that rabble? They're what? You have commitments. You have, there's family, there's job, whatever it is. They're going to start asking questions. And that commitment that he has, that sense of, of Jesus, I got to follow him is, is going to evaporate. He's going to be very, very tempted to stay. See, Jesus knows that if we don't have a focus and a commitment on him, if we allow the other voices in our lives to bear weight, then, then the supposed uh, resolve that we have is going to be gone very, very quickly. That, that's why he gives the image of the plow, right? Everyone then would know, we probably can imagine it, not many of us have plowed a field, but when you're plowing, uh, you want straight lines, right? You don't want them all over the place. And everyone knew back then that if you were going to plow correctly, you had to look, you had to focus and be committed to the line. If you kept looking back, you were going to go all over the place, right? Just try to look backwards while you ride a bike. You're going to, it's not, it's not going to go well. You need to be focused on what you're doing. And Jesus is saying it's the same with discipleship. If you're going to move forward faithfully, if you're going to be true to what God is calling you to, you can't, you can't be distracted. You can't be pining for what is left behind. When you become a Christian, you're a new creation. You have new priorities, new purpose, new life in Christ. You need to be true to that. And really what Jesus is talking about here is an issue of the heart. Right? He's not saying that you can never go back and visit your family or um, go back to you know, whatever your life was like before and, and visit. In fact, in the Old Testament, we have... Um, two pictures of people who go back, one of them uh, for the wrong reasons, the other one for the right reasons. And you see the difference in, in heart. So the, 
The first is Lot's wife, right? Famously, infamously, uh, the one who looked back at, and her heart was wrong. So Lot's wife, the family, Lot's family was being saved from Sodom. God was judging this wicked, evil city. Angels were sent to save them. They were running out of the city. The angel said, look, don't look back. Look straight ahead. We're going to save you. But Lot's wife, she looked back. And the language of the text uh, was she looked back longingly at the city of sin, revealing that her heart, she really wanted what was behind and she's immediately judged. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about. That, that our hearts are so fickle that we can very often really, really be caught up in the sin of our past. Even though we, we've said we're a Christian, maybe you're a new believer, maybe you're watching at home and you've started to, to follow Jesus and walk the path of faith and yet you're, there's still a lot of things that are either distracting you or holding you, patterns of sin, patterns of thought that are not godly and Jesus is saying you, you can't do both. If you were going to follow me faithfully, if you're going to grow in godliness, if you're going to be used for the kingdom, you, you need to sever those ties. It's an issue of the heart. We know that because in, in the second example in the Old Testament is a, a, a young prophet, Elisha. And if you remember that story, uh, the older prophet comes to Elijah, who's plowing a field, and he puts his cloak on him, and he says, come on, God's calling you to ministry. And in this case, the younger man says, okay, wait, I want to go back. I want to say goodbye to my mom and dad. And the older prophet says, okay, you can go. And he goes back, not because he's pining for the life that he's leaving behind, but because he wants to make a clean break. And what he does is he takes his, his whole herd of oxen, whatever, I don't know if it's a herd, a bunch of oxen, and he, he kills them. He slaughters them. He sacrifices them. He, he feasts on them. They have a big feast. He takes the yoke and he burns it. He's basically saying, look, I'm leaving this behind. With joy, with, with expectation of all that God has for me, I'm moving forward. So it's not just the aspect of, of turning back for a moment. It's really the heart. And with Elijah, we see a heart that is convinced that this road of faith, that God is calling him down, however difficult However seemingly uncertain, it really is filled with joy and peace and comfort and security. It's where he needs to be going. See, that is the heart of discipleship. It's filled with, with mercy, with love for the people around us, and a real commitment to going wherever it is that God calls us. And I thought it would end with, uh, with a more modern picture of what this can look like. Sometimes we are you know, reading the Bible and, and we're inspired to the word of God transforming us, but it's good also to be like, how does this work out in life? For, for those of us who are trying to, we're trying to figure out these decisions that we have, how to build a life. Well, I came across this guy. Uh, it's not super current, so about 100 years ago, still better than Old Testament. Uh, his name is William W. Bowden. So uh, the reason though that I think he's compelling for us is this was a young man. So a young man in his 20s and he had everything that the world could offer him. Uh, he, he inherited a fortune from his family, lived in Chicago. He was a really bright guy, went to Yale, well-educated, went to Princeton Seminary as a Christian. And as a young man in his 20s, started making some decisions to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And one of the first things he started to do was he started to give away some of his money. At the time, uh, he gave away about $500,000, which in today's money would be about $10 million, they estimate. He, he just found people who needed it, institutions, just felt compelled, not just willy-nilly, but with a real sense of God, how can you use what you've given me? Uh, he also started to serve, served the church, served on the, the, the board for the Moody Bible Institute, gave of his time. 
And then at the age of 26, uh, he decided to act on a, he felt this compulsion in seminary to go and reach Muslims for Christ. So he left all the lifestyle that he was enjoying in Chicago and he, and he headed to Egypt. And he started living in Cairo. And sadly, uh, he, he didn't have long there. Uh, while he was there, he contracted cerebral meningitis and he died that year. But as he was dying, he scribbled in his notebook, he scribbled these amazing lines. He wrote simply this, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Just think of him there. Just think of what he gave up. Think of what a young man of 26 might have thought, right? If I had known that I only had this much time, I would have, there's all these things I wanted to do. I could have enjoyed. Maybe, in a, you know, in his mind, he's thinking I'm going to be a missionary for a while, then I come back. That's not what he thought at all. He thought, he thought, no reserve. I have not held back anything from what God had called me to. No retreat. I didn't look back. I kept moving forward. Whatever opportunities God gave me, whatever compulsion from the Spirit of God, I acted on it. And no regrets. Not that he didn't have sin that he was regretful of. He, he didn't regret using his time and energy and resources that way because he knew it was the best use of them possible. And so he could die with a sense of satisfaction even though his life was short-lived. See, we're on a road. Whether you're with Jesus or not, we're walking a path of life. And the question we should be asking in particular, if we are following Jesus, if we say we are, is what, what does our path look like? As, as we look back on the road we've been walking, is it filled with mercy? Have we taken opportunities to really love the people around us? Is it filled with commitment? where when God has tested us, when God has given us opportunities, we've said, yes, yes, I'm doubling down on you, Jesus. I'm holding everything else with an open hand, but to you, I'm clinging because I know you are the source of my true comfort and hope. And if you aren't yet walking with the Lord, I still invite you to look around and see what the path you're walking looks like, whether there is genuine joy, genuine hope, genuine security. The interesting thing, what Jesus says at the end, is he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What that tells us is that when we're focused, when we're committed, when we're being obedient to things God is calling us to, we are being made more and more fit for our eternal location and destination. We're being made fit for heaven because along the way, God is shaping us and transforming us so that we know him more and so that we rejoice more in him. So I'm gonna pray for us. Pray for us as a church and pray for our city that as we are on the road with Christ, we would be faithful and God would keep us. Join with me. Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm so thankful for the Bible. So thankful, Jesus, that we look to it and even though it's thousands of years ago, Jesus, you're speaking to us here and now. Lord, each one of us this very week has opportunities to follow you faithfully or, or to, to pull back a bit. Jesus, you're gonna give us uh, people people to love, people who are difficult to love, and yet you're going to call us to mercy. Lord, would you help us to be faithful in that? Jesus, you're going to give us opportunities to, to let go of those things which have brought us comfort, those things which, which the world would say we needed. It's, that's security for us, that's joy for us, and yet you call us to let go because you are our greater comfort and you want us to know that more. I pray, Jesus, you would help us in that. Those of us who are your followers, help us not only to be faithful, just to be obedient, but to find joy in it. And I pray, Lord, that through this, you would use us as a church, 
God, that more and more people would be impacted, that we would indeed proclaim the kingdom of God so that more people would find genuine joy, genuine peace. And I pray in particular, Lord, for those watching, those tuning in, those here who don't know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray you'd open their eyes and their heart to to see the truth of what life means without you and, and the degree to which you love them and have shown your love through your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us and for how you lead us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.